Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. Welcome to the December edition of the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill. I'm here with Chris Ferrio and, of course, Steve Mono from Masaro Farm in Woodbridge. And we're all here to get you ready for a very interesting show today. I think it's probably a, um, I don't know, it's, it's unusual in a certain way, but I think it's, it's really, it's really going to be a great show, you know. Yeah, for, like for, for a change? For a change? Are you implying that past shows have not been up to this level? Uh, well, um, I guess we, we can only get better, right? So so this show would have to be the best of the ones so far. Okay, I, I just really take it personally when you disparage <laughs> our previous shows. <laughs> All right, we're just joking. It's just a joke. It's not a very good one, but it's our joke. Actually, it's not our joke. It's... Um, What's his name? The guy who, uh, the comedian who... Yeah, who um, <laughs> drawing a blank. Uh, yeah, he was, an, out here. he was a, an elected official at yes, one time was. also. Yes, he was. Al Franken. Al Franken. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Oh, Steve. Yeah. I'll get in on the joke at some point. Yeah. That's a good idea. we we got to figure that out. Well, anyway, Steve, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> Great I, to be here. Yeah, and I hope you're uh, feeling a little more... Sp- Bry, since your last surgical procedure on your knee? Bit by bit. I'm still crutching around, but uh, a little more nimbly than a couple weeks ago. All right. Well, thankfully, there's no ice and snow yet, probably. So, Steve Munoff, manager of Masaro Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. It's a CSA, a community-supported agricultural agriculture operation. So Steve will be giving us his report in a moment. But I just want to also mention that today we are going to have a great guest with us, uh, Sal Gilberti from Gilberti's Organic Herb and Vegetable Farm. There are actually two outlets for that, one in Westport and one in Easton. So he'll be speaking to us from the Easton location today, starting at about 1225. And Sal is, has been on the show before but this will be his second appearance here, and it'll be great to have him back. So let's turn to Steve Munno. Steve, what have you got for us today? What's been going on? How's life on the farm? Life on the farm is good. You know, it, it's clearly winter now, you know, although, you know, we still have a, a few days until the shortest day of the year. But, you know, it's, uh, it's dark. There are patches of snow. You know, today is kind of cloud-covered. Um, and, you know, you can never really rely on the 10-day forecast telling you what's going to happen 10 days from now. But I do see a big bit of snow, you know, in the forecast uh, late next week. So, you know, there's always winterization projects that start happening, um, you know, late fall, just so that we're prepared if any storm comes in early, uh, you know, maybe in October or November. So we've been preparing to winterize the farm throughout and that we had a decent snow the other morning. We had a lovely, you know, cover, um, which has since mostly melted. But, um, you know, we've got more on the way for sure, uh, whether it's next week or in the months ahead. 
So there's just always little bits of projects for us to do to make sure our, our high tunnels and buildings are secure and our water lines, you know, that we use for, for our chickens, uh, for getting them water are, are clear. We don't have any issues with things freezing up. So there's always projects, but the, the winter is a fun time. It's quiet. It, it can be beautiful. Um, I won't be moving around in the snow as much given my condition, but I always look forward to the snow anyway. Um, so and I know certain parts of the state already did get a lot of snow. That snow that fell here, which was just an inch or two, you know, was several inches in other parts of the state. So and, and maybe some of this rain we have coming tonight, tomorrow will be snow in some portions as well. So if you haven't done your storm prep yet, if you haven't gotten your things ready, you know, whether it's in the garden or around the home, uh, you know, this is the time to be thinking about it and make sure we're prepared for whatever comes. Well, that's uh, good advice, good advice. Uh, and I would like to say that since we haven't done this a whole lot in the past few months, why don't we open the phones to anybody who would like to ask a question of Steve about, you know, winter planning kind of things that go on, seed catalogs, that sort of thing, or anything that relates to the next planting season or the past one. So... If anybody ha- would like to converse with us here today, ask a question or make a suggestion of, about our um, humor, <laughs> another track we might our, pursue. For, be our attempts, our attempts. At yeah, I mean, I'm sure Ooh, you've enjoyed them. But we got someone. They could always be better. Uh, yeah, apparently we do have a call. You know, as we're getting yeah, the call on, you know, this weekend might be, you know, the the yeah. final markets for some places, certainly here in New Haven with City Feed uh, and the Worcester Square market at, at Conte West School. This is the sort of final market of the season in, until next year. So given that the holiday comes next weekend, you know, it's probably the last chance to get out and shop from your local farms for, um, you know, food and local goods, you know, for the holiday. So it's a great time to get out and support the growers you know, for those of us as vendors who've been out there in the cold or in the snow, uh, we really appreciate people coming out at this time of year. You know, we often think about the summer bounty as a great time to come out, but there's still a lot happening in the fall, uh, and it uh, feels a little uh, more meaningful in these these tougher moments to get out when the temperatures are hovering around freezing. So, would love to see your faces at uh, whatever market you go to, I'm sure the farmers and vendors there, you know, be really happy to see you this weekend and over the next week before the holiday break. Steve, apparently we do have a caller. Let's check in and see what uh, that person has for us. Okay. um, This is Jeff from Easton. Oh, uh, Jeff. We haven't heard from him in a long time. Yep. Hello, Jeff. What's what's going on? So it was was quite a season where I planted things and then freeze and it seemed to go up and down and they kept going. And uh, just a few days ago, I picked a few grocery bags full of deliciously sweet greens. Um, so I always encourage people to just keep planting into the fall and keep planting because you never know. It might just keep growing. <laughs> and it's a little snow cover. There's one uh, bok choy out there that uh, might just keep going. When did you? So when was the last time you planted, Steve? Uh, Jeff? Uh, you know, I keep a calendar of all that stuff. I can't really tell you. It's probably well into September, maybe even October. I said, oh, look, I plant. Put them in the ground. Mm-hmm. See what happens. Yeah, I think the last bok choy, really pock choys that I planted didn't really do much, but it's okay. Uh, you know, you, you try. I mean, I have I picked so much greens. I didn't buy anything in the store since April, except a little asparagus, which I don't have growing. Um you know, just as a treat, but I mean, phenomenal because I'll just about make it to the end of the year and I froze stuff. And Hello, WPKN. So, so, now, so now the big question, Steve, is what do I do with the carrots that are small that should overwinter, but I find that they tend to get pushed out of the ground by the frost. Is there a way to keep those carrots so they'll grow into next year? Because they are a two-season crop. They, at least they can be. Yes, yes. Great question. So, yeah, what happens, they do get pushed out of the ground over the winter, and that's the sort of frost heave cycle that happens, and that's what pushes rocks to the surface, and it does the same with carrots. So the ground freezes, 
and sort of uh, expands and then and then um, you know and then uh, thaws and it sort of pushes the carrots up and then you end up with that sort of top inch or two um, that that's frozen off and and uh, you know gets a little rubbery and, and isn't all that desirable. Um, so you want to cover them for the winter. You could use a layer, a nice layer of uh, leaf mulch or whatever you've got, um, and that will. Uh, protected. And then you kind of, as soon as the snow is cleared in the spring, if you get snow in your area there in Easton, you know, it could be mid-March. Sometimes it's not until April to clear those off and, um, you know, give them a little bit and then you'll want to dig them up before the greens uh, go to flower. So that's when they're sort of, you you don't want that to happen because it's taking energy from that sweet carrot uh, that was developing all winter, uh, and then it's moving the energy into flowering. So as soon as you see any signs of that, you'd want to harvest. But uh, if you just protect it for the winter with a you know some kind of layer of mulch or frost blanket and pull it off, um, you know early spring, mid spring, uh, you'll have a, a really delicious carrot without any of that um, top rubberiness. So will they grow very much? Should I expect them to grow or not really? You won't see much growth between now and mid-February, but as the days get longer, you'll start to see extended growth. And that's why if I can wait to, to if they're small right now, if you can wait until later in, in April, you know, you'll get a good bit of growth because they're sort of ready to grow. So depending on when you seeded them, you know, um, they might get a, a, a bit more growth in the spring. Um you know, it, the timing is is um, is sort of an interesting thing to see. You know, we try to do most of our overwinter carrots seeded in late July to to late August. That's kind of our window. And when they come later, um, you know, we might not get quite the size that we want out of them. Um, but earlier, that earlier planting from late July to late August allows the carrot to sort of size up and to sort of hold in the ground. And then what we're gaining over the winter is sweetness. Uh, and just storage in the ground, so we're not trying to store it, you know, in our refrigerators or our coolers. Um, but they're and they're gaining the sweetness in the ground um, because the the carrot reacts to the cold by ter- converting those starches to sugars to protect it, and you get a really great sweet carrot. And it's really fun to be out in the garden first thing and have something you know, to pull out of the ground that that's um, so vibrant and so delicious. Jeff, so, it was really uh, uh, yeah, it was really great to hear from you again. We have another caller, so. Keep on, keep on plugging out there. We'll like to hear from I'll you again. Okay, thank I'll you. Cover the carrots. See how they do. Great, right. thanks. All right. All right. Good luck. Holidays. Bye. Okay, so we do have another caller. Yeah, we have another caller. Hopefully, you still there? Hi, caller? I'm here. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you? I'm well, thank you. This um, summer, I was given a stunning wild strawberry uh, plant, and it's in a five-gallon container. Uh, it's still extremely leafy that the leaves are starting to change a bit of color. How do I winterize this plant? Steve, any thoughts on that? A good question. It's a wild strawberry, you say? She gave me this small wild strawberry plant, and then I took a five-gallon container and put together everything I read this plant would like, and it's really flourished. Mm. It gave a lot of fruit. It was just a beautiful plant. My thought is, do I like put the pot between two azaleas to shield it from winter weather, or what do I do so it can um, so I can enjoy it again next summer? Well, that's a good question. I'll to confess that I don't grow um, you know stra- those kind of strawberries myself. I grow a June-bearing strawberry mostly, um, and I, but I would say I know the concern with overwintering strawberries in general is if you protect them too much and you get a warm spell, they might be encouraged to flower. Um, okay. You know, so so when we get those warm spells in in any of the months, you know, in Connecticut, we might have a seventy degree week in in January, February, or March. Oh, we always do, yeah. Those, yeah. What if I put it um, between like to protect it from heavy precipitation? What would you think of placing it between two shady azalea bushes? So it's like protected and it's not getting a lot of sun. Is that still not enough? Or should I just keep it in my garage? Uh, the garage might be a, a fine. It's still in that pot, so it might be fine there, and you can do a, a transplant in the in the spring um, and put them out there. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm trying to figure out what would be different for the wild strawberry than the June bearing strawberry that we do. Um, I would I would think you know, um, I would think the, the garage would probably be better um, because it'd be a, a little bit warmer in there. 
And like I, I came across, I don't even know where I got it, but a strawberry plant that I ended up, I figured I didn't want to leave it in a small pot over the winter. So I actually uh, planted it in my garden like like a month ago. But it's, it's too late to put something in the ground now, I would say. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's, yeah, a little too late now. But they, they should be hardy. I mean, you know, these wild strawberries are, are wild, and they do, they're generally considered kind of a good ground cover, so they're going to grow and spread. Um, so it just as soon as planting is ready, you know, in the spring, as soon as your ground is ready, you might be able to, to put it somewhere where, you know, it can spread on the ground and then be productive for you going forward and sort of, I think you should be able to leave it in the landscape without um, without much protection. And I think that's kind of the one of the benefits of the wild strawberry as opposed to the sort of uh, cultivated berries that we grow for the bigger, larger berry. You know, these wild strawberries. Oh, um, are, am I hearing put it between the two azaleas or am I hearing keep it in the garage? <laughs> For now, I would say I would say garage, but in the spring, you'll you'll want to get it planted in the ground. Um, okay, marvelous. All right, um, it, it's just a spectacular plant, idea. so I want to hang on to it. Yeah. So, thank you. All right, thank, thanks for calling. Take care. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, great. And yeah, so we have time for more calls. If anybody would like to call, the number is two zero three 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 six nine seven five six. That's 203-336-9756. So, and if I can just, just to continue on the strawberry care, because it's a unique situation, I think, having it in the pot now. I think maybe, um, you know, if it were in the ground already, I would say covering it with mulch like we do other other props in the ground, like we were talking about with the carrots to protect them or, or any strawberries you might have out in your garden. Um, but it is just a bit cold now to try to get those in there and, and have the roots get any any uh, uh, get established at all. So um, for anyone else listening, if you've got strawberries out there uh, in your garden, you know you can cover them up with with some some mulch. But they really they shouldn't require too much care. They are a wild plant, and they they should be able to to make it out there uh, in in the garden and in our, and in our landscapes. Steve, yeah, yeah. Uh, for for any perennial herbs, um, would you recommend covering them with um, with leaves or compost for the winter? You know, I think a little a protective layer on the ground. You don't have to bury your plants, but a protective layer of mulch around. Um, you know, and I like to use the the leaves for that. And as we've talked about in, in past shows, that's a great use for the leaves around uh, your property or from your neighborhood rather than having them bagged up and carted somewhere else, you know, um, putting them around your perennials is, is a way to uh, protect them from, you know, any of the heavy rains or winds. And it's going to provide some of that organic matter to break down right in place and, and provide some nutrition over time, um, preserve moisture, of course, as well um, for, for when, when we're in dry time. So, so yes, I would say, you know, you don't have to bury your plants in, in mulch uh, in case of those, those perennial herbs and such, but certainly some protection around uh, the base of the plant. Uh, okay, thanks. Something to be considered, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm curious about this uh, wild strawberry designation that the previous caller gave us. I wonder what, the, uh, are there different categories of wild strawberries? Because I, we had this thing, which you, you just, you mentioned ground cover, and, and this thing is like a incredibly aggressive ground cover that we have growing. They are, I believe, little strawberries. They don't, the strawberries, mm. the, the fruit that issues from them is completely inedible. It's like, we just has no flavor or practically. Yeah. And actually I have those um, growing in a section of my, my yard too. And, and yeah, they are, they, they don't taste very good, but they are actually really small strawberries. Yeah. They produce strawberries. Any, any thoughts on that? Steve? I mean, I'm concerned about it because it's, it's literally consuming the, any grass or clover that I have on the lawn. So it's like, a, yeah. Any thoughts well, on that? you know, plants, plants, plants will grow and expand. I mean, you know, and, and you might find some um, some of the different wild strawberries to be better for eating than others. But there are, you know, so um, we've got uh, various genus and species of your of your uh, strawberries, and there's a few different kinds of wild strawberries out there. Um, some whether they grow in the woods or they grow on the coast or they go in the landscape. I think there are sort of different species. So it's still a, uh, a strawberry, well, it's the same genus, 
Um, but then there's uh, different species of the strawberries, and some are going to be tastier than others. And some, they're they're all generally pretty uh, pretty small compared to the larger June June berries and berries that we see in the uh, June bearing fruit and strawberries we see in the store. Uh, but some of them are incredibly sweet. Some people sort of prefer those, um, you know, ever bearing and wild strawberries. Um, um, but as you know, maybe the ones you've got. Uh, but, um, you know, if there are flowering species in your landscape, well, we've got to think that that's going to be beneficial for, you know, our pollinators and our, our various, um, you know, uh, other friends living in the, in the landscape who might be making use uh, of those uh, of those little berries out there. You know, it's, it's important resources for our for our wildlife. All right. Well, Let's see. We do not have another caller right now, but we're, we will welcome one or two. We have uh, the number 203-336-9756. We're having a just absolutely rambunctious conversation here today. It's just amazing. We have people calling. Yeah, we, should, we should ask for callers more often. Remind, <laughs> remind them they can call us. Well, sometimes it's convenient, and today it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you are listening to the Organic Farm Stand, which comes to the first and third Thursday of each month from noon to one. And this is the third Thursday, believe it or not, <laughs> occurring. <laughs> occurring uh, they're calling me on my cell phone, uh, occurring on uh, so early in the month of uh, December. But right, because our first show was on the first. That is right. So here we are. But let me see. I wanted to just maybe get back to the conversation uh, that we started a couple of shows ago about compost. And I think there are so many different, I guess, versions of what people do for composting and how they use the compost. So can we revisit that conversation? And I just want to maybe by introduction to that topic, mention that I have a neighbor. He has this garden just up the block for me. And he, he was out there working one day and I said, well, so what's going on? He said, oh man, I got the greatest production of vegetables. So you know, like 12 different things growing in his garden. And he said, and man, it's, it all has to do with the composting. And what I do is I just take everything, you know, I think he, he might even said he takes, you know, chicken bones and stuff like that. <laughs> he throws it all, he just throws it all on the garden. It's some, you know, I guess even when the things are growing there and he kind of barely mulches it in or, or gets it, in, gets it below the surface, but you know, oranges, cantaloupe rinds, you know, he doesn't care. He just throw banana peels, eggshells, hmm. coffee grounds. Is that like a viable way to do composting, Steve, or does it have to decompose a lot before you actually put it on your garden? Uh, well, I would suggest, um, letting it decompose fully and fully compost um, before putting stuff on, on your garden. I uh, would not suggest putting, you know, I mean, there certainly as we walk around the farm, as you walk around your garden, maybe, you know, you uh, have a bite of something and, and leave the, you know, the top of a carrot and, and sort of in your garden or, you know, there's a squished cherry tomato here and there. That's fine. But I, I wouldn't be bringing your food scraps out and, and, you know, placing them around your garden and uh, think that that would be beneficial. Um, you know, the composting is a process of a breakdown of, of these scraps, whether it's your food waste or your vegetable waste or your yard waste. Um, and there's real life in there. There's your, your fungi, your bacteria, your invertebrates, and they're breaking that down and processing it and turning it into what should look like kind of a rich soil. Um, you know, the sort of uh, telltale sign of a completed composting process is that you you can't tell that it was a cantaloupe before, you know, or that it was, you know, banana peel before. You're seeing, you know, broken down soil and it's going to have a smell like soil. It's going to have a rich smell, uh, hopefully. And hopefully you've had aerobic with, with real air in there. You've been turning it and aerating it and not anaerobic, which is going to smell kind of funky and, and unpleasant. Um, so I think, you know, there may be something to, you know, leaving some scraps here and there, but I, I wouldn't suggest that for, for your garden. Um, I think you, you want to have uh, a finished compost product so that you uh, are, aren't seeing any parent material. That's how you know it's, it's done. And that's why, you know, you want to 
start new piles or a new so that you, you're not continually adding to something and then seeing, you know, an orange peel that's going to end up in your garden. You want to um, let it break down fully uh, and then, you know, move that onto your garden and then have a new pile. Um, so you're, you don't continually have that, that sort of original parent material mixed into your compost. You have to decide when to stop and start, you know, a new bin or a new pile and let the other compost finish or be spread you know, in your garden or in your farm. That's uh, good advice. Now, I one last question before we move on to our guest, Sal Gilberti, who is in the dock waiting for us. Are there any food items other than the obvious ones like meat that you would not put in your compost pile? Well, in a home compost pile, you know, for wherever you live, you know, one of the key things is, is um you know, managing, you know, what gets into it. So while we want the, the, the fungal life, we want the bacterial life, we want the, the bugs and beetles and things, you know, we, what we don't want is whether it's attracting, you know, skunks and raccoons and bears and mice and whatever it is, you know, whatever might be near to you. And that's where deciding what goes in it is really important um, because, you know, some stuff is going to break down fairly quick. So you get your, you know, your vegetables or your grass clippings that are going to break down quicker than say, you know, bones, you know, chicken bones or things that might attract other animals uh, more readily. Now, I think most compost is going to attract something. Um, so, you know, you have to stay, stay vigilant and, and, you know, keep managing your, your pile. But um, I think generally speaking, you know, most people in, in, their, in their homes or in their yards, you know, are, um, you know, dealing with mostly green waste and not, you know, not dairy and not meat. But I think, um, you know, as they tend to bring, uh, they attract sort of different things and are a little bit harder to break down in our in our home environments. Whereas like a more advanced composting facility, you know, can 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 manage any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So for, for home use, I, I'd probably keep it at your sort of green green matter and brown, you know, browns might be uh, some of your woody stuff might get mixed in there too. You do need to have a um, sort of the carbonaceous stuff. Sometimes you can get shredded paper and newspaper in there. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting taking your recycling bin and dumping that in the mix, but our our, our compost is sort of a mix of, of carbonaceous material and, and nitrogenous material. So your sort of drier, leafy stuff having more carbon, and then your nitrogenous stuff is that that sort of green stuff, and that's where we get a good ratio and, and a good breakdown of uh, of material. So, so regular, um, like uh, grass, grass too, also, right? Or is that absolutely. Cons- yep. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, let's bring in our esteemed guest today. We have Sal Gilberti joining us. Sal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for calling me, Richard. I appreciate it. It's great. I noticed your there's a poster, a flyer of several organic purveyors or providers to different small retail outlets. And uh, the one I shop at had your poster up, and I was, oh, that's Sal Gilberti. We got to get him on the show. <laughs> so that's how that's how your name came to mind again. It's but it's so mm-hmm. great to have you back. And why don't we introduce you simply by saying that you, you have a four-generation organic operation that I first noticed it in Westport, but it's in two locations, in Easton and in Westport, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, our Easton location is our wholesale growing operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have four acres of greenhouses there, and that's where we, we produce most of, the, we, all of the, most of the product that goes into Westport. Um, Westport is, um, you know, sells not only our our products, herbs and vegetables, but they also sell ornamentals and house plants and things of that sort. Also, as a as a uh, overall garden center, but um, you know, we, uh, my grandfather, when when he started in his this business a hundred years ago, he was a cut flower grower. And uh, in those days, um, you know, they were not organic at all. I mean, they grew organically in their garden uh, for their, you know, for the vegetables that they produce for themselves. But as far as the the uh, cut flowers that they grew for uh, uh, for shipping into the New York market, uh, they grew, you know, carnations and roses and uh, um, Gerber daisies and uh, ranunculus and anemones, uh, things of that sort, dianthospetrics. But they they sprayed and they sprayed with um, you know pretty much anything they could get their hands on. In fact, uh, I remember my my dad spraying while he was smoking and eating eating a sandwich at the same time, <laughs> and, and not wearing any kind of a, of equipment. You know, so it's a it's a much different ball game. But I got into the uh, organic uh, growing. 
um, when I first got out of school, and um, my dad passed away suddenly uh, that year in 1959, uh, and um, I was sort of, you know, uh, put into this this package that I wasn't uh, expecting. And uh, we started growing herbs, and but we had my dad started growing herbs for for a specific customer, and um, it was sort of like you know I had to take over this business, and and I started growing herbs, and I was very very lucky uh, that in a na- the neighboring town of Weston lived a woman by the name of Edna Cashmore, and Edna Cashmore had the prestigious distinction of being the president of the Herb Society of America. And between 19, I think 1956 and 1964. So she sort of took me under her wing and, you know, basically helped me to identify uh, plants, you know, networking and so forth. And I was beginning to build a, a, a trade in, in the herb business. Uh, and it wasn't basically... Um, uh, what we anticipated, we didn't think it was going to get be that big because uh, you know in those days if you were growing herbs you were either a witch or a warlock and so <laughs> there aren't too many there weren't too many people growing herbs but I got very interested in them I got you know I was fascinated by them I I just got involved with them and Mrs Cashmore was um, uh, basically the, the 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 force that got me going. But the thing that I noticed immediately when we first started getting some customers coming in, and we were growing maybe 50 or 60 varieties of herbs that Mrs. Cashmore suggested I grow, and um, I noticed that people came in and they were sort of eating their lunch at Gilberti's by picking away at them and sampling them, you know. And I immediately recognized the fact that, you know, we can't be spraying these things. This Mm. is crazy, you know, Mm. (laughs) because people are just, you know, so... Uh, I began to research our organic growing and growing without the pesticides, and um, we immediately switched to that. and um, And I found it was a lot of fun. I found that you know there there was um, you know when you're growing organically, you have to pay more attention to things. You can't wait till you get the bugs in. So I was bringing in beneficial insects when no one else was doing that. By a, um, a gentleman from um, uh, Denver. Colorado, who or a Dutchman who was bringing them in from Holland. The Dutch are way ahead of us. We're always way ahead of us in, in growing. Um, and so um, he had these beneficial insects. And I always remember him telling me, he said, his name was Richard Gerhardt was his name. And um, I don't know if he's still around. I don't think so. Um, but he, he said to me, Sal, you have to remember that the beneficial insects will keep your house clean, but they won't clean your house. I always remember that expression. Um, so we were bringing in the beneficials, and, and, and then we started using a long-needle yellow pine bark as a, one of our, our soil mixes, into our soil mix, rather, into our blend, uh, because it was uh, had a natural fungicide in it. So we didn't have to use fungicides. So we didn't have to use insecticides. Uh, and then we're using strictly organic fertilization. So um, we were into the organic way back in the 60s when nobody else was really doing it. And um, and so that's when we started. And, then, and we, we, never, we didn't get certified because in those days the certification was coming from individual states. There was no really there was hard, fast rules and regulations. On, and until the, um, um, the, the turn of the century in the early, um, I think it was 2001, that the federal government came out with a, a standardization uh, for um, organic certification, and then we got into it right away, and we've been doing that ever since with the certification. Mm. Yeah, so that's our story. Um, so it took too long to th- explain it. No, a great story and an important one because, as you say, you were a pioneer, and I'm not sure how many people were educated through the process of seeing your operation and consuming your products. Which I don't know. How would you describe the difference? between, since you kind of were on both sides of the fence for a while, the difference between conventionally produced products and organic ones in terms of flavor and nutritional value. 
you know, I, I think the flavor is coming basically from soil grown. I mean, if you're soil grown, you're going to get you're going to get the flavor, and with and then with with the fertilizations uh, that you're using with the organic fertilizations, and we use also uh, think a, a, a blend called uh, azomite, and azomite is mined in Utah, and it's a, it's a, it's a, a probably fifty or sixty different minerals. Uh, and it's a natural um, a- addition to this soil, and that that of course you know gives you the flavor. The big thing is what else is in these chemicals that are being absorbed by the by the plants. I mean, you know, I don't know if you you know this or not, but it, this is a fact. The United States of America is the only country in the entire world that has nut allergies. Now, what does that say to you? What, what is, why is that? You know, and, and I was just talking with someone about that a few days ago because, you know, we're, I'm going to guess we're, we're in around the same age group, uh, you know, 50s, 60s. And I don't remember anyone having food allergies when I was growing up ever. Absolutely. We, we, uh, I remember the cafeteria in school, everybody had peanut butter and jelly. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. Everybody had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It was, it was the way it was. But if you know how they raise peanuts, you know, with the amount of fungicides they use, because and, and the peanuts are rhizomes, so they're sucking up everything, and then mm. the kids are eating them, and, they, and, the, and the fungicides are the worst. Of all of the things, the, the pesticides, the fungicides, uh, the, you know, the insecticides, and the, and the fertilizations, the worst of all are the fungicides. And the same way with garlic. They use a ton of fungicides on our garlic. Wow. And then they use a lot of, and the other thing that they use a lot of is, um, is the, uh, the herbicides. The herbicides. The her- they, they have a lot of selective herbicides. In other words, things that kill everything but garlic. Everything but peanuts. <laughs> and they saturate yeah. the soil with that. That's all being absorbed by the, by the plants. Yeah, that's why you should never, ever buy anything that's that's non-organic in root crops. You know, potatoes, beets, onions, um, garlic, uh, carrots, whatever it might be. If it's in the root, if it's in the ground, you should never, never buy non-organic. So the fungicide is used for mostly for root crops. Uh, yeah, anything that you know um, catches you know fungus early on, because you know. Um, um, unfortunately, things like uh, garlic and and uh, onions will catch fungus early on with too much moisture. Fungus mm-hmm. grows because of too much moisture, not enough air circulation, overcrowded plants, um, and uh, and not enough light. And so you know, it, and of course, it, there's no light every night when it gets dark. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. if you you know you get too much moisture out, that's why you should never water your your garden at night. Always water. I'm in mm. late afternoon. Always water early morning, so the sun has a chance to dry up all that uh, water, all that moisture, and then fungus doesn't really grow. Sal, we have uh, Steve Munno on the phone too, and he's uh, he's the manager of Massaro Farm in Woodbridge. Steve, you have any uh, thoughts or questions for Sal? Well, you know, Sal, I've, I've been, you know, uh, happy to come to, to your shop at different times over the years. And I've just been, you know, curious the way that you've adapted in, in recent years and how things have changed for you, maybe specifically this year as we've not fully come out of the pandemic. But, you know, I know things changed with both your, your wholesale distribution and, and how things were, who was buying what and where. But, um, you know, but I obviously you've got people coming into your shop as well. So I'm just curious how it's been for you um, this year, specifically coming out of the last couple of years of change that we've all gone through. I think, you know, um, I, you know, I think the closest thing I can, um, I can say to normal uh, is, is probably this year. Uh, I think it's come out of it pretty good. I mean, there's still a lot of restaurants who aren't, you know, back on track. Uh, but there, there's a lot of restaurants that have gotten bigger, um, and of course the chains have gotten bigger. But that's not what what I'm, you know, specifically our market. But our market to the restaurants uh, through the distributors has pretty much come back to close to where it was pre pre pandemic. Um, as far as the the uh, the gardeners are concerned, of course, when everybody was was at home that first year. 
um, then everyone suddenly decided they're going to plant a garden. Uh, and and then, it, then it was a <laughs> tremendous boom for us uh, because everybody wanted to get into the business. It was a tremendous boom for the seed industry, as you probably well know. Um, sure. But then I think after going through it for a year, um, there's a lot of people that, you know, it was a little bit more work than they had anticipated. Uh, and then, they, you know, you, yeah, yeah. if you're going to be a gardener, you have to love it. You have to want to be there and want to and want to do it. And my dad used to say, you know, once they get the boat in the water in June, then they forget about the garden. <laughs> so uh, uh, I think a lot of them have um, uh, the reality of the, the amount of work that has to take place to, to really grow crops. Um, it took over, and the other thing is space. You know, a lot of people don't have the space in their in their yard for a garden. So there's a lot of people growing in in barrels and tubs and and small beds, which is wonderful. Um, but the um, uh, the amount of gardeners, um, uh, I think, it might be 10 percent higher than it was pre pandemic. But I think it it, it was you know it, it got, as you would know it went through the roof there for for a year. And then I, it, it flattened out considerably. So, Sal, I have uh, actually two two comments. And one is that um, I quite by accident came across your farm in Easton. And it just I was like driving through there looking actually looking for a place to buy like a farm, you know, basically for a farm stand. And I wandered around your property for a while. Finally, someone said, oh, yeah, it's in that little shed up front. So, so I was there for like forty-five minutes. But um, and and then I only realized afterwards that it was one of your. Yeah, that's where you grow a lot of your 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 products. Um, yeah. so is that is that where you grow everything? That Pretty you much, sell? yeah. I mean, there's four acres of. I mean, from the from the road or where you were, where my house is. You you probably couldn't see all the greenhouses, but if you, I don't know if you walked all. Oh, the way I I went way in. Yep. Uh huh. And you saw all the greenhouses. We have 27 greenhouses, so um, about a little over four acres of, of cover for the greenhouses, and that's where we grow everything. And we're, you know, we're 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 52 weeks of the year. I mean, we're operating, uh, and the thing that we sell on a weekly basis are the microgreens and our salad mixes, and that's that's what really has kept us going. Because the potted plant business, is, as you well know, is April, May, and June, and then everybody, um, uh, it, you know, that that business sort of goes away. But uh, the microgreen business, which we got into about six, seven years ago now, that has really expanded so well, and we're, we're doing so well with the, the distributors who are selling to the restaurants and also to the markets. We're in uh, in uh, uh, about 18 or 20 whole food stores, and we're into uh, the big Y stores and a lot of small mm-hmm. markets like the Caraluzzi's here in uh, this area. We're, we're all the way up into Rhode Island um, to uh, several stores there. And, and the small uh, uh, markets that are in this area, uh, New Morning uh, up in Woodbury, is a very good customer of ours, and a lot of small markets like that that buy our salad greens on a weekly basis. Sal, talk a little more about microgreens. Give us chapter and verse on them, because I think uh, it's sort of a new a new thing for a lot of people, and uh, they don't understand. I don't fully understand. Basically, it's, you know, yeah. I mean, most of the microgreens growers are, are growing, you know, a few items, um, you know, things like um, uh, micro kale and micro broccoli, uh, uh, a lot of um, of the, the um, mustard greens and so forth. We grow about 38 varieties of, of microgreens, and we, because we make some blends, you know, we have a spicy blend, we have a French blend, we have an Italian blend, um, uh, seasonal blends, and uh, that's our, our little niche in the marketplace because we put these blends together with various uh, items. But the thing with a microgreen is that you're basically from basically from seed to harvest can be anywhere from. Uh, eight days like radishes. I mean, we cut the radish tops in eight days after we've sown the seeds uh, to things like um, celery, uh, which takes uh, four weeks. But most of them, they average about um, 12 to 16 days from seed sowing to harvest. Whoa. And we sow them in very, very thin, um, I mean, the shallow flats, I should say. They're only, there's only an inch of soil. Uh, hmm. And then we do it. It's a one cut, and so we cut once, and we we make compost out of the soil. 
and that's what that's what we circulate and re- and and recycle. Um, but uh, all of the nutrients and all of the flavor is is the strongest in the in when it comes from the seed directly. So you're getting about um, anywhere from 60 to 90 percent more nutrient value out of the microgreens than you do out of a full-grown leaf. Why is that? Because it's all coming from the seed. You know, it's, all, it's all coming from the seed. The nutri- so, you know, the nutritional potential is is all in the seed, and so the correct. sooner you harvest it, you're getting more of that. Is that the point? That's right, and more of that in the flavor also. Mm. Um, and based on the fact that we we're doing it uh, with with soil also organically and with soil, because in the soil, you know, a lot of a lot of that comes from the soil also, and so. As opposed to the to the uh, hydroponics, I mean, there's a lot of guys who are doing it hydroponically in mm-hmm. in warehouses on with lights, um, and which you know it produces plants. There's no question about it. But you can't get the same nutritional value, nor can you get the same taste. You know, and people say, "Well, oh, how come your stuff tastes so much better?" It's not it's not me. It's the soil. <laughs> the soil that does. It. Yeah. How, how tall are, are the plants when you harvest them? Anywhere from, um, I'd say, the average between, um, uh, I'd say, an inch and a half to two inches. Now, when you get into the baby greens, that's, those are you know baby greens, which are bigger, and, that, and those leaves are ba- basically uh, four to six inches. Um, and they're also, you know, flavorful, not, but not as, they're not as flavorful as the, as the uh, microgreens are. You mentioned broccoli. It's hard to me, for me to imagine how you could actually produce uh, florets or flowerets, yeah, or whatever yeah, they're you called. You do. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's a, I think that I think broccoli's, if, if my memory serves me right, I think that's a 14-day crop. Uh, kale hmm. is very popular. You know, micro kale. Micro kale is a big deal. Sunflower shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, the sunflowers. Uh, that's a big item because they they claim they have a besides. Uh, the nutritional value, they have a lot of antioxidant um, potential, I mean, um, uh, service in that. It also, uh, it's used in, in a lot of, um, of uh, well, I can't think of the, uh, the, the scientific term, um, but it's basically plants for, medic- for medicinal purposes. But, but botanicals or something? Yeah, this um, you know I I, okay. I don't know why I I don't know it because I'm sometimes my little old brain doesn't work all the time. Well, it's interesting you say broccoli because I mean not broccoli, uh, sunflowers because you know sunflower um, plant stalks are very woody. You know once they once they grow, I'm surprised that you could eat um, sunflower yeah, seeds. Yeah, the biggest problem with sunflowers with my with micro sunflowers is that. Uh, the seeds don't always fall off, so you have to. You know, the only variety that we can do is the is the the, the black oil seed, which is a little black seed, uh, and um, it grows a you know grows a regular sized sunflower, but it uh, the seed falls off more quickly um, once they mm-hmm. once, once the shoot begins to grow, uh, and of course you know the seed is a shell, and so that's um, it's not very palatable. Right. And, you know, I, I thought because I, I feed birds and um, I always get the black oil sunflower and I, I have thought of but never actually tried to grow plants from that, but I probably could. Oh, yeah, you can. They're, they're not quite as large as the, um, as the big, you know, the, the giant um, um, sunflowers, but mm-hmm. they are, they're not, I mean, sometimes, you know, when we, when we make the compost, um, and we just dump those things into in the compost, and sometimes a couple of them will get up on top of the compost pile, and they <laughs> turn out to be nice-looking sunflowers. <laughs> We're speaking with Sal Gilberti of Gilberti Herbs and Vegetables, based in Easton and in Westport. Sal, once again, remind us, so the Easton operation, is that a retail thing where people can No, just, not at all. I have a little no. farm stand that we put some salads in. I have a small refrigerator there. We probably sell uh, maybe uh, 20 or 30 boxes, little uh, containers a week. Uh, I don't have a, a big uh, following there, but, uh, uh, you know, the, la- the local people will, will buy it. And, we, and I raise chickens, 
And so I, I, you know, I, I produce about three dozen eggs a day, and Ooh. and they are as soon as I put them out, they're sold. So yeah, yeah. In Westport, is that is primarily is it primarily herbs or microgreens? No, it's 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 a it's a full uh, full uh, garden center, you know, full fledged. My 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 daughter in law runs that with um, with two uh, um, uh, um, managers, um, Joe uh, Joe. Uh, Gloria, uh, who used to we with Gloria's in Milford when they were there, you know, oh. yeah, ten or fifteen years ago, and then um, uh, Kevin Clark used to work for the Myro Brothers, uh, and they, and they do a good job. They they know what they're doing. They're a little more avant garde than I am. They know what's going on. <laughs> um, they, <laughs> they sell a lot of they sell an awful lot of big containers with uh, all sorts of things growing in them, and they do. A, a lot with house plants also. Mm. And one thing, that, another thing that's happened uh, uh, post pandemic is that people have gotten to uh, into more house plants, so they they're appreciating um, plants more. So you know, uh, Sal, I just wanted to ask you. You know, I was surprised when you're talking about your history and you're talking about referring to or organic products in the '60s, and I didn't even realize that terminology was around that long ago. In the 60s. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And you know what? It, a lot of it came, you know, Mrs. Um, I mentioned this, Mrs. Cashmore, the Herb Society of America. The the, the people that were in, in, involved with the herbs were very organic. Uh, they were very, very careful because of the fact that they recognized the fact that, you know, most people just go out and pick the herbs and then use them immediately in cooking. Um, so that, there was a there that 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 was a wave of people that way back there in the '60s uh, who were very organically or, or orientated. Steve, maybe Steve Mono could pop in here. And what are some of the earliest progenitors of the organic concept? Sure. Well, I would say you know we've been mostly growing or, organically for uh, for all of human history. I think it's more, it's more recently uh, that we've entered in with these pesticides and herbicides and things. So you're you know, absolutely it's, right. It's, it's, you're it's, absolutely that's, correct. That's, yes. the, that's the change. But you know, we can even look back at our you know we talk about Connecticut NOFA here and the work we do a lot. And that's a 40 year old organization. You know, that 1982 founding, and then the you know we have chapters in the other states that. Um, throughout the Northeast, and that, that goes back. We're celebrating 50 years now, so we're getting into the early 70s, and that's just the establishment of the organization. So, but certainly, you get you get folks uh, in the decades prior, you know, talking organic, in part as a you know response to the the conventional sort of the introduction of the herbicides and the pr- proliferation of herbicides and pesticides, and so that's why we needed that that movement to speak out and say that you know this is the these kinds of practices that we've done traditionally and throughout, you know, history across the globe need to be uh, reclaimed so that um, these pesticides and herbicides don't take over everywhere else. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. We are just about out of time. I want to thank Sal Gilberti from Gilberti's Herbs and Produce Operation in Easton and Westport. Folks can reach you on your website online. Steve Mutto, once again, thank you so very much for being with us. And for Chris Ferriero, sure. Say goodbye, Chris. Goodbye, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sal, Sal, come back and, and join us again sometime. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. All right. Thanks, Sal. Bye. God bless. Steve, God bless. have a great, great, have a great holiday, and uh, same to all you out there for the Organic Farm Stand. My name is Richard Hill.